We are live. Yo, what's up, guys? It's Jonathan Bame here with Theory 11. Today is Wednesday the 7th or something? 9th. It's the 9th of August uh, 2017. We are closing in, actually, on our 10-year, crazy to say that, anniversary of Theory 11. Actually, it's the end of this month, August 31st. Woo! I know. That's wild. Um, so I'm speaking today that who's, who actually was not born when Theory 11 was launched. That's a lie. He was born. He was, <laughs> he was young then. <laughs> Uh, but I'm here with Franco Pascali. Franco um, is on the line. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly. So we're going to talk about a few things on this podcast uh, today, uh, kind of wide-ranging subjects, but all relating to, to, to Franco and his uh, past, present, and future um, in magic. So Franco, as those of you who follow Theory Level on Instagram are already aware, uh, was was tapped as director of magic at theory 11 about a month or two ago um, he's supervising our product pipeline new product releases at theory 11 and lots of other secret adventures that we're working on franco's first official release himself at theory 11 was this past week uh, called the dmb spread control or dmb control, spread control 2.0 to be precise so we're going to talk about that um on this podcast but i think i wanted to start more broadly if that's okay franco and yeah, just to give people an idea of who you are where you're from what your favorite color is um that was a yeah. joke um but you know if you can give people some background on how you started in magic uh where you're from and uh where you're at now sounds good i mean i'm born and raised in los angeles um Still uh, living in LA now. Magic for me was just at first nothing. It was very much an on and off thing starting from when I was nine all the way to now. Technically, I was into magic, right? Uh, but I do remember, again, it was very on and off. As a kid, I liked skateboarding, I liked playing video games, probably more than magic. But around eighth grade, something, I guess, changed in my mind and I just completely became in love with magic. And oddly enough, what actually got me back into it, really heavy practicing, was Paul Harris's True Astonishment DVD set. And the only reason I say that that's what got me back into magic is because I was at a time then where my hands were uh, a, a realistic size for card magic. And there was a lot of card tricks in that DVD that required no gimmicks. Because up until that point, I was just a magic shop kid that went, bought the next gimmick, next, never played with it, whatever. But uh, around this time, I just kind of remember enjoying practicing for the sake of practicing. I would go home, I'd be in eighth grade, I would go home to practice, hours would go by, and I would remember enjoying just practicing, which is something that I never enjoyed in my entire life, practicing anything, right? Uh, fast forward a couple years, when I was 15, I auditioned to be a junior member at the Magic Castle. And uh, by the time I was 16, I was already doing close-up shows in the close-up gallery for a Saturday and Sunday brunch. So I guess I kind of uh, completely blessed with the opportunities that I continue to have and have had in the past to perform for real people. So keeping that in mind, um, I guess from the very start, Magic for me was let me perform everywhere as much as possible and get good at performing. That was always my goal. Yeah, I think but, that like what's unique to that story is that you very early on had an appreciation not just for the uh, performance of magic, but for like the art of magic, the craft of magic, like the actual, a lot, you know, it's, it's hard not to be excited if someone like learns a trick and as I'm guilty of it myself as much as anybody, you learn something new and you're excited to show someone. But it's it's it requires more um, 
focus to be excited about the the pursuit of that trick or the practicing of a new trick that might yeah. take weeks or months until it's ready Completely. to show someone so you developed a, a respect for that process early on which i think is obviously informs how quickly you've um you've grown um in a short amount of time you're 20 now uh, right uh, i i just turned 20 yeah you're very old 20, now. july 31st i'm a basically grandpa Women yeah i, I like first, anymore i remember calling you that day i told you <laughs> you should be retiring now it's you've gotten very old um but no, I think that that's made a huge difference. Is the, the you are fortunate and are fortunate to be around uh, people, lots of magicians, and you're mm -hmm. able to see a lot of magic. You're exposed to good magic and obviously not good magic uh, at a very <laughs> young age, and that that is enormously helpful. Um, you know, when I was starting, I didn't meet my first magician until I was like 13. I started when I was five, so that was yeah. like you know, it's a seven-year period of just like you know, totally. magical TV. You know, for me, again, the, the first time I stepped into the Magic Castle was to audition to become a member at the Magic Castle, which is a pretty crazy thought. Before then, I wasn't around magicians, but again, around this period in my life where, you know, I'm about to start high school and finding hobbies, and of course, I was still skateboarding and doing other things, but, you know, I started doing magic so hardcore. Like, this is when we're talking about, like, I knew I finally loved something, period, that's it, end of story. I'm practicing eight waking hours a day. You know, like, that's when it was just there. And when you love something that much, you hate yourself when you do anything poorly. And I think that's what got me good as fast as uh, I got good, which is basically just being afraid of mediocrity as far as performance goes, right? Or not being able to execute a slight or executing a slight that you've been working on for months and you totally felt the moment that you, they caught you on it, even if they didn't say anything, right? Uh, for people that are like y young magicians that are listening to this, who might be, you know, younger than you now or just starting out, how did you yeah. get over the hump or was there a hump from practicing magic by yourself, which you were very you know, focused and passionate about, to getting the confidence of performing magic and, and going up to people or starting performances at social events or at school? What, what were the first uh, performances you, know, you did? Were they at school or where, where were they? Uh, my first performances were definitely at family parties and my mom being like, oh, like, you know, my son does magic. <laughs> um, I saw, you know, my first professional performances was in the close-up gallery at the Magic Castle. So that like, I'm really spoiled in that regard. Those were the like the first real paid shows I was doing, you know. Um, but you know, as far as performing goes for people, I completely think I was in the mindset a little bit of kind of the ignorance is bliss. I thought it was you know I thought I was amazing at everything at that age, and I would just do it because I thought I was cool, not thinking about how I looked doing it, not thinking about what other people thought. You know, I'm just like yeah, they they, they went crazy. I must be amazing. It was yeah. just kind of, I wasn't even thinking about that. I no, was just, yeah, it's a know. healthy mindset. That was the same reason why when I was, I think the first big show I did, it was, I went from like a show where there was 50 people in the audience and the, yeah. I was like, yep, I'm ready. I'm going to do theater shows now. And then I rented out <laughs> a theater for 500 people. And the same thing, it was like a, I guess a glorious blend of ignorance <laughs> and naivety and arrogance, yeah, yeah, yeah. like all in this like nice king. And it was, <laughs> and just to be clear, that show that I did was terrible and I was totally <laughs> unqualified to do it, but I'm proud and, and still like 
uh, I'm, I'm still uh, I look back fondly on the decision of doing yeah. that because sometimes you have to jump off the cliff first and build the airplane second. If I had always been yeah. waiting for like one day I'll be good enough or one day I'll figure, you know, I don't think I ever would have done it. And so sometimes putting yourself in situations where you know you're not ready to be in forces yourself yeah. to become ready to be in that situation. Totally. Otherwise you wouldn't be. And, you know, for, for yourself, it's really important. If you're good, you could totally put yourself in situations that you're not ready for if you're aware that you're not ready for them. Yes, right? Because if yeah. not, it'll corrupt your ego. But that's totally fine. You just got to know. Correct. And sometimes, well, in my case, at least, I wasn't, I didn't know that I wasn't ready for it, but the audience uh, was, was very aware <laughs> of that. So, like, I immediately realized that. I think I've told this story on a podcast in the past, but I was trying to do a, like an hour show or 90 minute show, and it was the night before the, the show was going to happen. And I had asked my dad to uh, to time how long this performance was because I wanted to make sure it was, eh, give or take, you know, uh, an hour. And I mm-hmm. went through all the tricks in real time. And I was exhausted. I was like sweating. I was like, whoa, that was great. That felt really good. Dad, how long was that? And he was like, that was seven minutes or 17 minutes or something stupid. Where I was like, I, and that was all the tricks I knew. It was like 15, min- 15 minutes of content. But, that, no but that's what forced me. To, 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 how, how do you get 17 minutes of content into an hour of content in one night? And the answer to the to the puzzle is you have to learn to perform. And not that that first performance I did was good in any way or not even above terrible, but it forced me to like, oh my God, I'm going to have to talk to the audience. I'm going to have to present these tricks and not just go through them, you know, uh, uh, you know, in terms of do this, do this, do this with the spectator. So it's kind of a trial by fire sort of approach to learning magic, which I don't condone. I just, it worked for me decently well. And it was like the only thing I knew how to do at the time. Um, how does, uh, like, for example, last week I was in LA and you were performing at the castle then. And I don't know how many shows you, you did. It was like 15, 21 shows, shows that tw- week, 21 shows in a week. How does something like that? Cause I think, you know, when I was growing up, I was fortunate to meet Chris Kenner, Copperfield's mm-hmm. producer, still yeah. then and still today, when I was 13. And the advice he gave me then was just perform as much as you can. That was all he said. It was perform as often yeah. as possible. Doesn't matter if yeah. you're getting paid. You're just in any uh, art form, by and large, painting, sculpture, music, anything, there's just a period of years where you are just very likely to be terrible. And the faster, the way, through, the way to get through that stint faster is by accelerating the timeline which is performing more and getting more yeah. and more experience if you're a painter paint more paint more paint more yeah. you always see these things online of someone who painted you know 100 paintings over the course of three years and you see the progression and the same right. is true with magic um have you how do you approach like performing 21 shows at the castle is that like do so, you see that as valuable even still today um, so every time you do it it's it's the most valuable uh, consecutive shows to me is the most valuable i think even i would much rather do uh, you know, 21 shows over the course of seven days, then um, uh, basically what I'm saying is when you're doing three shows back to back a night with like not even 30 minutes in between, you really have a lot of time to, not a lot of time, you have very few time, but it's just the time you need to implement what you think yeah, will you, work. And you, you have a lot of opportunities to, right. to make You immediately find progress. out, correct. Now, uh, with, you know, with the show that you saw, for example, um, you know, about 60% of that show I constructed uh, maybe five, six months ago. The rest was just kind of new stuff for that week. But I constantly have friends watching me after the show, giving me notes all the time, constantly. 
And the, the key to that is finding out who you want to listen to and then you listen to everything that they say, right? Because there's going to be people thinking they give you notes, there's going to be people giving you praise. Ignore the praise, ignore the, you know, ignore the, the, the disses, right? But you got to know who you're going to listen to. And I literally, I think that entire week after every show, I was at this restaurant on Sunset called Bossa Nova, sitting with different magician buddies, talking ideas every single night. No, there's no, I'm terrified of not getting notes because I know I'm not perfect. So when I do a show that I think is less than perfect and the audience goes crazy and, you know, some magicians watch and they're like, wow, that was amazing. It hurts me. It's like a dagger to the heart because I'm like, you know, I'm the scumbag who didn't put full effort and they're still loving it, right? They, they deserve better than that because I easily could have gone above and beyond. So I think it's important to... Film yourself and watch yourself and cringe over yourself and understand that you need notes to get better. Yes, you I know. think that the filming yourself part is a great note for anyone of any ability level in magic. Uh, I still have, unfortunately, the videos of me performing when I was a kid. And I remember watching those when I was younger and I would cringe, like you said, watching every second of it. But it helped me like, wow, I sounded like that or I spoke like that or I paused you know, that long or I spoke that quickly and I should have slowed down and spoken more articulately or, or more articulately or, or more uh, had a better script for this part. But that even goes to, you know, I learned... Um, years later working with Copperfield Copperfield still records every single show and he still right. watches them after most shows and so if someone of his stature doing f over 500 shows a year is still recording them and watching them back not for his own vanity but to see like yeah. oh that music cue was off or that lighting cue was weird I didn't even realize until I saw it from the audience's perspective or notice the applause and right. no one no one knew to applaud there and they should know so how do we make that more clear things like that and it's about making incremental progress so if you're a hobbyist yeah. listening to this and you're just performing for your you know friends at school that's fine too but performing yeah. as often as possible so that if you can make your performance a half percentage or one percent better every single time you do it that means every hundred performances you do it gets a yeah. significant amount better totally. so that repetition is extremely important and, and like you said finding someone uh, or people that you trust their opinion, obviously consider the source. It's, it's not yeah. you know, asking your little, little sister might not be the most accurate, but yeah. if, if someone's like, this is a knowledgeable performer, I like what he's doing, and I want to, you know, I, I, I aspire to be a performer of his stature, asking for their uh, mentorship or counsel. Or, and that doesn't have to, if there's no one around you in person, you know, connecting to someone through Theory 11. Uh, you know, Blake Voigt connected with Kaylin Morelli in 2011, 2012 through the Theory 11 forums, through Skype. You know, they were Skype right. friends before they were friends in real life and never met in real life. So things like that, just sending a video to someone, what do you think about this? And there's, there's plenty totally. of opportunities um, online using the power and connectivity of the internet to advance yourself. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, even I made tons of friends through Instagram. You know, that was totally my... Uh, that was my grind right when I was getting heavy into magic. So made a lot of friends and with, uh, with hashtags, just messaging each other, commenting. You know, you Skype and then you meet them at conventions. And it's, you know, it's crazy that you can make real friends from Instagram magic. <laughs> right. And, and honestly, yeah. you, you can, you can it's, it's a way of, of presenting material. You can, people can have access to cameras and editing equipment now that even five years ago would have taken a, you know, a Hollywood movie studio to create that level of production quality and filming right. something. So you can film yourself doing magic. You can film yourself doing cardistry, post it, 
See yeah. if it gets a response. See if you're doing well. See if people hate it. See if people love it. And you can kind of build on and create your own style and get more and more adept at speaking and performing and magic in general. Um, just to jump around a little bit, just because I want to get to a few more things before I know we have to wrap in a few minutes here. Um, this past week, we released a thing called DB DMB Spread Control 2.0, yes. which is yes. new and old at the same time. Um, can you tell people that are listening to this, what is it? What is new about it? Um, why yeah. are you excited about this release and what it is? So... To be honest, uh, the the handling of uh, it's called 2.0. It's called the DMB 2.0, um, but the handling is actually completely different from the original. Now, the DMB control was released by Dan Buck on Dan and Dave. I don't know how many years back, but it was a uh, very. That's probably the slight that I've practiced the longest. So it's basically a way to control a card to the bottom of the pack while that card is outjogged the entire time, so the spectator can't even imagine how that isn't their card, when in reality it's already in the bottom of the pack. So the, the original move uh, was deceptively, um, deceptively difficult in the sense that it's not difficult to execute, but there's a lot of moving parts. So it's like, am I gonna spread a, a large spread, a small spread? A tight spread, a dense spread, where's the card going to go? The other card that I'm pushing at. So there was just kind of a lot going on. And, you know, over time, I basically realized that there was a few problems with uh, the original move. Now, uh, the, the problems were essentially it's deck specific. And what that means to me is the move is far easier to execute with a new deck than it is with an old deck. And you always got to ask yourself if the moves you're practicing are deck specific because sometimes you're practicing a deck specific move that you can't practice enough to do with any deck, which basically means it's literally impossible to do with an older deck. And you kind of got to cut those out of your repertoire, I think, right? So I found out the, the original was a little bit more deck specific and there was a problem where there was always a slight discrepancy in the outjogged card where by the time you came down, that outjogged card uh, basically was in, a, in an awkward position. So I, I basically just developed a new handling uh, with a very, my approach to it was, hey, I've been now performing my new handling live for a while. I reached out to Dan Buck just uh, to see if he wouldn't mind me releasing it, even though it was different. But you know, I'm very close with Dan, so I would, you know, it, it was an honor to not only have him as part of the download, but to use the name of the control that inspired this uh, new handling. And, uh, you know, I, I think I really just kind of taught, I taught it step by step in a way where if you're learning it, you can just, you know, kind of copy my exact hand positionings with everything. And that tells you that you got to practice it the exact same way every time. And uh, that helps with a lot of slights, you know. Uh, sometimes you, uh, you learn uh, the slight and you watch the tutorial and you really just understand how it works. So now you go back and find out your hand positionings and... Yeah, there's a lot of things that are missed out on the tutorial. This always happens. Every time you learn a control, there will be subtleties missed out on the tutorial. Not because the guy didn't want to give them to you, but because it's things that you, you just won't understand until you've been practicing it for a while, right? You know, D, that's why a move like the diagonal palm shift, with, which I don't do or perform, but I have attempted, is interesting to me because there's infinite subtleties that you need to keep in mind and you keep learning, you keep becoming aware of them as you keep practicing. So with the DMB 2.0 that I published, I basically just tried to give you as much 
of the information that I've gained over the years of doing it, which would speed up your process. And that's besides the point that what's nice about this move, one, when done well, you can be burned and have nothing to worry about it. But the other nice thing about this move is that you're going to be able to perform it with misdirection within the first two days because all it takes to control the card is not even a fraction of a millisecond. And when I'm performing this live, nobody's burning me when I'm doing the move. I mean, I, I don't, that's not my excuse to do it poorly, but th that's just a, a comfortable thing to know, you know? And really um, great with misdirection, and even if they're looking, it's fine too. Right. Um, just in terms of high level, this is a control, at least the way the, 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 the language is on the website, of controlling a card to the bottom of the deck. But you also teach a way to do it to the top of the deck, correct? Yeah, you, you can control the card to the bottom. You can control the card to the top just as easily. Um, you could also control multiple cards where you, uh, you control one, you hand a packet to somebody, they push in their own card and shuffle it, somebody else does the same thing. And now you have this nice image where multiple people have multiple cards and they think in their packet that they're shuffling and really you've controlled them all to the bottom. Uh, there's there's a, a couple of those concepts that I go over, but yeah. Um, you know, it's also a coal-based move. So if you know other coal-based techniques, you might be able to apply them. Uh, I know Xavier Spade teaches his work on Ed Marlowe's future reverse uh, from a he does he has an interesting one over a top card cover pass you can very easily do that with a dmb 2.0 you could do troy hooser's slipstream to get a card second from the top very easily with the the same control um, i just think it's uh a extremely versatile move uh, so that's why i put it out in terms of ability level, um, is this something that if someone has never attempted or is not aware of the original publication, that they can yeah. get this video and easily um, start yeah. practicing? So, exactly. I mean, I start from scratch. You know, you need no prior knowledge to learn the control. And, you know, when people go to me and show me a, a, a bad version of the original or a bad version of what they thought I taught them in person, uh, it, what it comes down to is they're just not doing it correctly. So I like to think that if you're doing it correctly, and you follow all the steps, you know, within a month, you should be able to be doing it pretty well. And that's not a lot amount of time for a slide that you uh, will probably use in the real world, right? Yeah, it's awesome. And there's a lot, there's obviously a lot of controls we have published on Theory 11. Uh, this mm -hmm. is without a doubt one of the most deceptive. You can burn this. You can watch that the preview for it and kind of see it for yourself of how deceptive it looks. You can be staring right at it and it still looks great. But like you mentioned, uh, if performed properly, the spectator is not burning your hands at that moment. But it's interesting and, and, and confidence inspiring to know that they can and they'll still see nothing. Um, yeah. Uh, we have a minute or so left here, but if, if, if you haven't seen it already, you can, you can check, uh, the tricks section at theory11.com forward slash tricks and watch the DMB spread control. You can learn it. It's an instant download. It's cheap. It's under 10 bucks. Um, so you can, you can grab that today and start practicing it. Obviously, uh, let us know what you think. You can post your own review. We're going to be doing a lot more podcasts in the coming weeks with Franco and a lot of other different artists. So stay tuned to Theory 11 over the coming weeks in our new section in particular, uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And we'll be posting a lot more soon. But in the meantime, uh, thanks to Franco for joining us on this one. And uh, this has been great. I think it's a lot of helpful advice, especially for people new to magic or people that are interested in performing more 
magic um, of making that leap into the void. Um, so thanks for doing this, and thanks to you guys for, for listening, and we'll see you guys soon.